a lot of our students are upskillers, right? They're already out in the field and they need to increase their skill set. But if we don't have the curriculum in place to be able to meet that need, then we can't serve the labor market the way that we should be serving the labor market. A big part of that process is if there's a specific need or if there's something that you see coming on the horizon and you anticipate it will be a need in the future, we need to figure out a good mechanism to be able to communicate that. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing, and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. The skills and requirements you gain as a student in preparation for your field go past the academics. Our guest, Lenora Rogas, Dean of Visual Arts and Media Studies at Pasadena City College, shares with us that the faculty at PCC put careful care into making sure the student's journey starts with themselves by emphasizing the importance of getting to know oneself and by exposure to the many fields and pathways within a field to find the right niche. The student journey into the workforce is layered, and we explore some topics and solutions in this episode with our special guest, Dean Lenora Rogas. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Future of Work podcast. I am your host, Salvatrice Kumo, and today I have with me one of our very own deans of Pasadena City College, Lenora Rogas, our Dean of Visual Arts and Media Studies. Hey, Lenora. Hi there, Salvatrice. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm well, thank you so much. We are back on campus uh, doing our thing. How's it so far with that? In terms of the return to campus? Yeah. How are we doing with that? Yeah, we're doing all right. We've been on campus for a little while. At least the deans have been and are starting to phase in the staff more regularly and the students. And so we're excited to be welcoming back students for a couple of select courses over the summer. And then hopefully, if the governor gives us the all clear, Uh we can resume in fall. That's right. Well, I know you're a very, very busy woman, and I want to thank you again for your time. It's really wonderful to have you, and and you know our listener would love to learn more. And so let's get started. I think it what's always intrigues me about my colleagues is I always want to know like what led you to this point. How did your experiences or your your career trajectory kind of led you to become the dean of visual arts and media studies? You know, not all of us have a clear pathway, and and the idea of the future of work is just that. There is no one way and there is no one size fits all either. So I'm always curious to hear about background. Tell me a little bit about what led you to become a dean. 
I think probably in terms of being a dean of visual arts and media studies in particular, I'm probably a little bit unusual. My training is actually as a philosophy faculty. So I used to teach mm-hmm. um, at Pasadena City College um, in the philosophy and religious studies and humanities program. But I did teach humanities for the arts, so I do have that arts exposure. My mother was an artist. She was an oil painter. I love that. Um, so I sort of grew up, yeah, around, you know, don't touch the canvas for the next 900 years because <laughs> it's wet paint. And she was a potter as well. So my sister and I would always, you know, play on the, the spinning pottery wheel out in her studio. So I had a lot of art exposure throughout my early childhood. And my husband's a professional digital artist. And so I helped him with managing the early phases of his career, just sort of informally, you know, because when you're the talent, it's very hard to play both roles of being the talent and managing Yes. But once he was better, well, you know, well positioned in his field to sort of take over that aspect, I stopped assisting with that portion of it. At Pasadena City College, I was I was faculty. I taught. I did a lot of shared governance work. I was the faculty accreditation coordinator for the college, so I got to learn a lot about college operations. I've sort of got brought into that unexpectedly during one of our accreditation cycles. But it was a really great experience. I worked under Dr. Kathleen Scott, who is now over at Long Beach City College. Mm-hmm. And she taught me a ton about leadership, bringing in lots of different voices and about collaboration and about the operations of the college. And then after that, I was the Academic Senate President. I sort of served both roles for about a year. And then I was Academic Senate President for a year. And I did a lot of professional development to try to prepare myself for both of those roles. A lot of leadership training, a lot of organizational health training, a lot of training about how you create buy-in for things and so forth. And so when this dean's position opened up, it seemed like a good opportunity. Although I'm not a professional artist myself, I, mm-hmm. I'm what my faculty would call, or what the faculty would call, a hobbyist. <laughs> I do dabble. Uh-huh. I've published. I'm a mixed media dabbling artist uh-huh. or hobbyist. And so I have a very high regard for artists in my personal life mm-hmm. and a high regard for artists professionally. And so this seemed like, well, since they're not hiring an artist, they're hiring a, a dean, a manager. I do have that skill set, and this is a great <laughs> chance for me to flex that. That's great. It was a weird path, but I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Great. I, Especially you know, now, during this time. It is. It during is. a pandemic where we've had to make some significant changes. I think I am a big believer in the universe whatever agency one assigns to to the universe at large. I'm Mm -hmm. a big believer in the universe creates opportunities that we are uniquely suited for and spaces in which we are needed. So I I feel like I fell in here at the right place, the right time, given that I taught online for years when I was a faculty member. So I was well positioned to be able to help others with the transition during COVID. Right. And I think that wide range of skills really led you to just being adaptable and flexible in your role and and changing as we needed to during this last year of the pandemic and, you know, the flexibility in adjusting post-pandemic. When I talk to some of our, our guests here on the podcast, it's always just that. It's not just one thing, one area, one area of study, one area of focus, one area in career. We've all shared multiple avenues of 
you know, uh, experiences that kind of led us to where we are today as leaders of institutions, leaders of corporations, leaders of our community, et cetera. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think that also, you know, your area, your division really has a wide range of areas of study, you know, so talk about, right. So talk about, you know, multiple skill sets, but you also have multiple careers within your division, you know, fashion, design, digital media, cinema, journalism, the list goes on. Right. And, and a lot of these areas, like if we can just spend some time on it just a little bit, is that, you know, some of these areas really they develop or they curate really the entrepreneurs within this area. Not all of them are going to go work for an establishment. The The good majority are going to become entrepreneurs in their domain expertise. I'm kind of curious about, you know, regardless of whether they're, you know, whatever area of focus they decide to, to focus on, whether it's designing or filmmaking, et cetera, how does the division really kind of shape that student to help him kind of craft their career pathway, knowing that they're going to, you know, some of them will be on their own as independents. I think there there are a lot of different things that we do institutionally to assist with this, but with respect to instructors in classrooms, the faculty really drive this process of helping students to navigate something that can be exceptionally tricky and competitive and difficult. It's difficult to make a living in many of these fields, and it's even more difficult when you are an independent artist or you're independently exhibiting. So it's really the faculty who help students figure out where they want to go, how to prepare for that. So I'll be referring to uh, insights that the faculty have provided throughout this. So um, one of the faculty members, Professor Yamaguchi, he heads our product design program, and he's also one of the chairs of the division. Mm-hmm. He indicated that really he insists that the students learn more about themselves and what resonates with them and what makes them excited. And the only way you can get students to that point is by exposing them to a wide scope of different art media and different design media. Because there might be possibilities out there that they didn't even know about, right? Right. Um, And that might be where they end up going or what ends up making them excited. And so really making sure there's a, a wide range of experiences and a lot of exposure to different fields and different pathways within a field so that the student can realize all of the different opportunities, all the different ways that something is applied and, and get excited about these different pathways or find a, a niche, so to speak. Professor Yamaguchi also indicated that obviously there's the acquisition of a skill set. You have to learn the skills that are necessary to create the work that you dream of creating. Right. But also learning about the different things that exist after class. Like, where do you go from here? So what are those pathways? You can work immediately after graduation if you graduate, but you don't necessarily have to graduate with a degree. You could end up with a certificate, for example. So exposing the students to the different certificate options, the certificates of achievement, for example, or the occupational skills certificates. Talking to the students in the classroom about transfer opportunities and which colleges, you know, really excel at X, Y, or Z. Bringing in people who are currently employed in the field to talk to students, both in the classroom and in special events, to make sure that the students understand, here's how you either land a job with an employer, or here's how you learn how to go out and navigate this on your own as someone who is self-employed. So it's really exposing students to all these different opportunities so that they can figure out what, at least for now, works for them. And if something that might work for them now may not be what they do 
later on, right? We all change. And giving that permission to that it's okay to change, right? Yeah, like absolutely. allowing that space. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's a great way of phrasing it. Now, in terms of what happens institutionally or in terms of our programs, we want to make sure that the students complete some sort of capstone portfolio course or assignment okay. so that they're walking out of programs or certificates or even just a class with a portfolio that is strong that can be presented to others and that demonstrates their breadth of work. And and in that way, they're they're prepared to hit that freelance field to sell themselves, essentially, Mm -hmm. as artists and as designers. All of our courses in the studio field and the art courses place a very heavy emphasis on the critique process. And so this is something that you'll hear Mm -hmm. faculty refer to a lot. We're going to go do crit now. And the critique process is (laughs) students have to present the work that they've been completing in the course to the rest of the class, and it's up there on a pinned-up board or projected on a screen, or if it's in a VR environment, you know, it's out there for all their peers in the class to experience and the instructor to experience. And there's a very rigorous, when you witness this critique process, there's a very rigorous inquiry process that takes place where the students are asking very pointed questions about the work, the instructor is really pushing about the work and the students' motivation and what they were going for and whether or not it was successful. And so the students really have to, in this process, become comfortable with feedback, with putting Mm -hmm. themselves out there, with becoming very vulnerable because art is a very personal thing, right? It's something that came from you. you. You birthed this thing. Right, right. And so being willing to put it out there and have it critiqued enables the student not only to become prepared for that out in the field, and that's really important if you're self-employed because, you know, you're putting up an online portfolio. You know, people might be merciless online. It's a very, very tricky, harsh environment sometimes, um, as social media has taught us. But getting the students to a point where they're comfortable with that, not only critique from others, but learning how to engage in that process on their own so that, okay, I've I've been through critique a million times. I know what sort of questions to expect. Here's how I'm going to do it to myself. I'm going to critique my own work. So they develop that, that really thick skin, that right. is required in a highly competitive work environment, whether it's self-employed. I think even particularly if you're self-employed, right? If you sort of have a stable job right. somewhere, then you're cool, right? Yeah. But when you have to continually go out and sell yourself, that's something right. you have to really be good at critiquing and, and honing your own skills and recognizing your weaknesses and improving upon them. So the critique process does that for this. For sure. And this, you know, your response reminds me of an episode that we had with Ramona Schindelheim of Working Nation. And she emphasized greatly around storytelling, around telling your story as an entrepreneur, around telling your story as a career professional, just around telling your story about you, like your brand. And it seems so imperative, I think, in the areas of study within your division, because they do have to tell their story. They have to tell it very well. They are their brand. They are their walking brand, (laughs) however you want to say it. I don't even know if I'm even saying it right. But their portfolio is their, it's their everything. And so I, I appreciate you saying that because oftentimes we forget that it's just about our work. It's just about the deliverable. It's like the outcome of what we did, but rather it's really about telling our story around our work that sets us apart when we're competing in roles, whether, you know, even in our roles, um, it's it's our story that's kind of sets us apart and gives us a competitive advantage. So I think for a student, it's important for them really to kind of find their voice in that space. And as an artist, 
Like, this is who I am. This is my work. Here's why. Here's my story. And for me, I I don't know how we would necessarily know when a student has found their voice, but do you and your faculty ever think about or talk about, gosh, like we really know when our student has found their voice or looking at it a different way, how could we encourage our students to truly find their voice as an artist? So, you know, feel free to like look at that question any way you'd like, but I think, you know, can we truly prepare a student to finding their voice as an artist? Or is it really about, you know, that aha moment when they do, like, what do we do from there with them? Again, Professor Yamaguchi said it really well in my conversations with him on this. He said, you, you know that they found their voice as an artist when the coursework and the course content is now just a launch pad for their own work. It's not Mm-hmm. It's not a container for their work. So that the student arrives at a point that without prompting, they take assignments far beyond what the assignment actually required, the initial requirements. So they're really exploring and they find themselves producing larger volumes of work, even in their free time, right? So it's no longer something that they are doing because they have to, because they have to, you know, turn this thing in. They have to have this deliverable. Right. They're doing it because it's something that they are passionate about. And I've noticed it with the artists in my life um, and occasionally when I, when I dabble as well. This is what you want to be doing, in, like in your spare time even. And, and you don't even look at it as spare time. When I take a look at the artists around me, it's, no, I'm, I'm doing my work. And it could be, you know, at midnight and they're still improving their abilities and learning more about whatever medium they've chosen. Maybe they're learning about a new medium to add that to their skill set. And it becomes almost an obsession. Mm, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and, and I don't mean that in at all a negative way. That's I good. think there's a negative connotation with that word. But the artist who has found his or her or their own voice becomes mm-hmm. obsessed with learning more and achieving more and pushing boundaries. And so I really like the way that Professor Yamaguchi expressed it in those terms, that the course is no longer the container. It's just the launch pad. Got it. That's that's a good way of putting it. Are there in these discoveries and in watching kind of like the student blossom into their voice as an artist, I wonder, if, are there any parallels to trends that might be happening within, you know, programs in the area? I'm wondering if there's anything kind of blossoming there that, you know, we should kind of keep an eye on and or, you know, align some of our students' voices with those emerging trends. I think there are probably three primary things that we're seeing coming out. Uh, Otis, which is an art and design school, uh, a four-year college in the area, mm-hmm. they produce a report sort of on the, the state of the creative economy in the LA region. Okay. And uh, as we were sort of walking through the report, they indicated that one thing that we're really starting to see emerge recently is, at least in the marketplace, in the in the labor force, is employers are looking for an emphasis on higher skilled workers. The jobs that are out there that are available are seeking people no longer for minimum wage employment or just a livable wage employment, but for those highly mm-hmm. skilled workers because we have such talent in this region. Right. In, in, in a couple areas, we surpass New York in terms of our creative economy. And so we really have to start preparing students for that highly competitive workplace and that demand for higher skilled workers, digital in particular, would be the second area. 
those emergent technologies, they're always changing. So part of a skill set is not only learning how to use your current tool set, but anticipate what the future tool set you might need to know is going to be. And so we have to train students mm -hmm. to be prepared for that, that you can't get sort of stuck with one way of doing things, that this field is always going to be influenced by the culture and the society around it. Right. And so you have to be ready to respond to that and incorporate those things. So high skill sets, digital technologies that are constantly changing. And we see it in academia, for example. So all every educator right now has right. has now learned about the importance of video conferencing. And there was yeah. no choice in this. Like everybody had to learn about it. <laughs> so those video conferencing platforms, the students need to become adept with that, not only to be able to get through the course at this point, but that is really where we're going, right? You have to be able to collaborate with clients, particularly in this global environment. You might have a commission from somebody who's across the globe, especially if you work in a digital field. So becoming adept with those types of technologies um, has become an essential skill set. Being able to adapt to different technologies just as part of your field. So in digital media, for example, if you take a look at video game design, Augmented reality is now a thing. Virtual reality, although it's not, it's not mm -hmm. huge, it's going to become pretty big. So you're no longer just, and I say just, but I shouldn't, you're no longer creating code only for someone looking at a screen, but you need to be adaptable and realize, okay, at some point I might have to adapt this to a virtual environment or an augmented reality environment. So in the digital field, mm -hmm. keeping those skill sets up, the ever-changing technology Immersive experiences are going to become increasingly popular. Mm -hmm. The Van Gogh immersive experience, I'm sure the listeners have seen those, those billboards right. all over the place. Van Gogh was never painting, thinking, oh, this is going to be gigantic and surrounding the viewer. Right. But a modern artist uh -huh. needs to think about that now. How is the audience mm -hmm. going to experience this piece? Or how could this piece mm -hmm. be displayed differently for different settings? And how does that change mm -hmm. the audience's relationship to the piece? But how does that change how I create the piece in terms of my use of space and scale, right. detail? Right. Uh, those are things that we only mm -hmm. really now have had to think about in such technologically profound ways. So definitely technology. And I think the third thing is a little bit more nuanced, but really important and very profound. Fields are no longer separate from each other. Architects are now creating video games. Who would have thought that those two fields would have been together, right? You go into a program thinking, that you're, okay, I'm going to learn to design buildings. No, you might end up learning to design something to construct something very different or the different direction that journalism has taken. Right? Oh, yes, for sure. If you're a journalist now might become a podcaster or might become an independent freelance journalist who does their own online show, in which case you need to know about the technological side of it as well as, you know, the ethics of reporting and so forth. So all mm. these different fields that we mm. sort of used to historically keep separate, I think those boundaries are very much blurred now, which means we need to help students become very well-rounded and very adaptable and very mm -hmm. perceptive about changes that are around the corner so that they can prepare themselves for it. So we have to sort of enable right. them to future cast their industry 
Now, how do we connect those intersections of talent, adaptability, and trends? And what might that collaboration look like, you know, with our major employers in these industries? And how do we adapt even curriculum, right, to meet these emerging trends within these fields? But, you know, specifically for the employers, how do we how do we do that in a way that provides the feedback that we need. And 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 I already know, like you guys do a great job with the advisory committees. Really do. Is there is there room there to like improve that collaboration? If so, like in a perfect world, like what might what might that look like for you? And what's the ask? I mean, I'm sure that there's employers out there who are listeners right now who are saying, like, how do I get involved? How do I be a part of what's happening in Lenora's area and be an influence, a positive influence to curriculum design, program design, and even just with the student? Of course, so there are the advisory committees, right? That's, that's huge. And more of those, more frequent. And then understanding, you know, that really if for an employer, somebody outside of the institution to serve on an advisory committee at the college, it, you know, it's, you're donating your time, right? It's, it's a philanthropic effort of a sort. Um, Right, because we're a community yeah, college, sure. and so mm-hmm. we don't have the same sort of ability to compensate people for their feedback that other institutions might have. But realizing, I think, that in participating in these groups or coming in to guest lecture, you know, if you're a CEO mm-hmm. of an indie game company, for example, or if you are, you know, s- someone who works in the field at a company, or even if you're, you're a freelancer and, and you found a way to thrive in your field, being willing to to come in and talk to our students directly in the classroom about your experiences, being able to engage with faculty, the outside of the institution side, just that willingness to engage and understand us for who we are and what we are as a community college. I would really love separately to kind of ideate with you, how do we incentivize that collaboration? (laughs) Because you're right, it is volunteer, right? It is a philanthropic effort really to work. Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's actually very deliberate and very strategic because they're looking for very specific talent. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. If if they're looking for something specific, like we're not, you know, psychics, we don't know. A lot of our our students are upskillers, right? They're already out in the field and they need to increase their skill set. But if we don't have the curriculum in place to be able to meet that need, then we can't serve the labor market the way that we should be serving the labor market. A big part of that process is if there's a specific need or if there's something that you see coming on the horizon and you anticipate it will be a need in the future, we need to figure out a good mechanism to be able to communicate that to the faculty at the college because it's the faculty who write the curriculum. Curriculum writing and curriculum approval is not as quick a process as we might like it mm-hmm. to be. So when, when a faculty member writes right. a piece of curriculum, that curriculum may not be implemented for another half a year or a year. That's how far in advance we need to know about changes to our curriculum so that we can meet the needs of the market. That's very good. I think kind of if it's okay with you, I want to switch gears here just a little bit because I'd like for us to toot our own horn here for a minute <laughs> and really talk about how fortunate we are to really to have two acclaimed art galleries on campus. You know, the Boone Family Art Gallery and the Gallery 5 and our very own artists in residence. Can you t- tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, that's, this is exciting stuff. You know, tell us about this year's artists. We are so grateful and blessed to not only have these spaces, but to have supporters out in the community of these spaces. So the Boone family, I cannot even stress how generous they have been to the arts program at the college. 
So there's a sculpture garden from Boone. Um, there's the gallery from Boone. But also the Pasadena Art Alliance has been exceptionally generous in, in the grants that they provided to us. And it's the Pasadena Art Alliance that really funds our artist-in-residence program. And so we're able to bring in specialized artists and guest lecturers through that generous grant that they provide for us. This year, we have two artists in residence, and that's actually something new for us. We Traditionally, we have one artist in residence each year, um, and then some companion shows to accompany that. But this year, because of COVID and because of the digital sort of platforms that we're using, we really knew, okay, well, we need to pivot. We can't simply rely on the traditional exhibition method of people coming to a gallery a physical place to look at an exhibition because that hasn't been possible. So we shifted our exhibitions to online um, and in doing so that really did open up an opportunity for us to be able to showcase some digital work as well and going into the future we'll, we'll continue to do that. So our two specific artists in residence this year we have a fantastic world-renowned sculptor Elliot Huntley um, and his work is actually currently exhibited on our website and he was our um, focus artist for Pasadena Art Night. Sculpture is really tricky to represent in an online environment, right? Because it's such a, it's something that you want to get up close to and take a look at. And so navigating how do we do justice to this artist and, and his important work in an online medium. And so I think the gallery committee has done a fantastic job of representing his work and and interviewing him about his work. And then we also have a digital artist um, coming up, Natalie Bookchin, and the piece that, that we're working on presenting um, of hers is about social justice and equity issues specifically. And so it will Love showcase it. a sort of collage of protests and social justice movements and some public events related to things happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, with homelessness issues and so forth. And that will be projected on a really large screen um, in the evenings mm-hmm. out in the main campus so that visitors don't have to walk inside a building to see it necessarily. They're able to, you know, ideally see it from Great. Colorado Boulevard. And so we when really does that start? Uh, that's going to start at the end of May, beginning of June, in that time frame. So we're still trying to nail down the exact Fantastic. dates. It's a, it'll be a very large, very, very large installation. Um, so we're you know, working on the projection screens and so forth. Love it. Love um, it. Yeah, but it, it became really important for us to be able not only to better incorporate digital art, which is such an important field in, in a much more pronounced way, but also to really start being much more active in how we present work related to issues that are happening in society. Thank you. That's so exciting to hear about the artists in residence. Such amazing work. And I can't wait to see them. So thanks for telling me about it. You know, something that's really kind of lingering on my mind that I would like to touch upon as we, you know, come to the conclusion of our conversation, but it's very, very important and I want to hear about it is really, Lenora, you know, this na- the, our national conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion. How has that really impacted the division, your division specifically, and your work? where you know, we talked about it in other episodes and how it's really kind of impacted the future of work in general, but specifically to your work, how has that impacted? Well, I'm really grateful to be part of a division that has fewer equity gaps in terms of completion and success rates. Than, Fantastic. Yeah, so the, the faculty themselves have always been really on top of this, and so I was, I was very lucky to, to walk into that situation um, where they were already very cognizant of this and, and doing a lot of things. Um, in terms of content of courses, obviously bringing in more examples of work 
from diverse areas, bringing in guest lecturers and industry experts from diverse areas, so that students from historically underrepresented groups have a better opportunity to see themselves as thriving professionals in these fields. But one of the, our bigger issues is probably cost. Anyone who's ever, you know, gone to, to do a painting, there's a lot of expense. Supplies are prohibitively expensive. Yes, very expensive. Or, or the technology associated yeah. um, with these things is a lot of expense. The equipment for a photographer is exceptionally expensive. So we have really good lending programs in place. We have open labs to make sure that students have that place where they can come on their own time to be able to complete those digital projects. We purchase supplies for the students, and we're trying to work towards some sort of standardization of supplies for entry-level courses so that students who enroll in those entry-level courses, whether it's a painting course or ceramics course or whatever it is, is provided with everything they need in the first week of class, no matter what entry-level class they're in. That, I think, will help to not only increase success and retention rates, just sort of across the board, but will really assist those historically underrepresented communities who may not have a support network that supports them exploring the arts. A lot of your support networks probably want you to go into something that they see as more lucrative, like, oh, become a doctor, become right. a lawyer, right? Right. So no, we're going we're gonna to provide you with what you need. We're going to work towards that. So that's a slow process, but we're, we're getting better at it, and we're doing better by our students in terms of trying to supply those things. Rethinking grading, rethinking late work, rethinking what it means to focus on a project. These classes, art courses at the college, they are very long sessions. It's three hours, right, twice a week, where you're expected to really focus on something. Okay, well, let's rethink that so that we can better engage members of the population who may not be able to do that. That may not be uh, uh, something that they're able to do because they're at home with kids, for example. Um, rethinking modalities of classes. COVID has certainly forced that. Mm -hmm. But even after this pandemic, making sure that we retain a high healthy number, good balance of right. online courses or hybrid courses so that adult learners um, with full-time jobs or with kids, you know, whatever your life situation, they still have an opportunity to benefit from our programs. And yeah. then, of course, redoing programs, reducing the number of courses that are required to complete a program, but still keeping all the content, getting rid of unnecessary prerequisites so that students don't look at something and go like, oh, I've got to take five classes just to get to the class I want to take. Yes, no, yes. let's get rid of those. those barriers for sure. Absolutely. And there are so many different barriers. So really approaching this holistically. And it kind of speaks to folks coming back. They're already yes. in the industry and they're coming back to get upskilled and to have all those barriers in the way is really a detriment to their social mobility, right? It absolutely is. A, removing those prerequisites if they're unnecessary, but B, if they are necessary, all right, and you're already in the field, let's see your portfolio. We'll override that prereq. You know, if your portfolio shows that you already have the mm -hmm. skill set that the prereq would have taught you, great, then you don't need to do it. That's great. I'm happy to hear, too, that some of the modalities that we tinkered with during this remote learning, that some of it will be integrated or continue to be integrated um, once our doors are open and we're back live on campus. Oh, That's really refreshing here because it's, it speaks to really the population, the diverse population that we serve. And uh, I think it's wonderful what you're doing. Thank you so much, Lenora. This, this has been a really awesome conversation. I appreciate all the work that you all are doing there in your division. And as always, our office is here to support, 
to be an ally, to collaborate with, to ideate around, all that good stuff. We're here to support any of those things. And for a community member who is listening, our employer, our our student, our faculty member, anyone out there who's listening, if they want to reach out and engage, what 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 might be the best way they can engage with you, Lenora? The website certainly is useful, and, and, and we're actually in the process of looking at some revisions to the website, updating it a little bit. But the website is a great place to start. Certainly engage with me, but at the end of the day, it's the faculty who really drive all of the success of these programs. Right. And I can't sing the praises of the faculty enough. They've done an incredible job, not only before this, but during this this pandemic. And so reaching out to faculty, the fashion department, for example, they have a great team of, of women over there, Dr. Holly Luttrell and Sunny Cannon, who love to work with employers on helping to create internship opportunities. The faculty themselves are really drive a lot of the innovation and the connections. Yeah, hop on the website, find the program that, you, that you're, you're looking for or that you're interested in or you're interested in supporting. Feel free to contact me. And of course, feel free to reach out to faculty with ideas as well. Great. Thank you so much, Lenora. It's been wonderful. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you can easily get new episodes every Tuesday. You can reach out to us by clicking on the website link below in the show notes to collaborate, partner, or just chat about all things Future of Work. We'd love to connect with you. All of us here at the Future of Work and Pasadena City College wish you safety and wellness.